morning. Good morning. I'm supposed to say good morning a few people in front, but all of you responded. Happy with that? Well, it's good to see you. And if I asked you your favorite food, I think in a heartbeat you can tell me one or two, right? <laughs> you don't even have to think, you know, it's, it's automatic. My favorite food is this, this, and that. But there are certain days where you just want to have something else, not your favorite food, but something that gives you comfort, we call it comfort food. So if I asked you what's your comfort food, what's your go-to comfort food? Mine is a bowl of miso ramen. Miso ramen is different from tonkotsu ramen. There are different kinds of ramen, but miso is kind of special. It's um, specialized in the northern part of Japan. So, as much as possible, it's very hard to find the miso ramen here in South Florida. Uh, but way before, in the Philippines, um, as much as possible, we tried to find the, you know, the authentic kind. So that it tastes, it tastes better. So many years ago, that's many, many years ago, I went to visit the north of Japan. If you have a chance, go to the Sapporo region, it's the northern part of Japan, especially in winter. The place is beautiful, the, the people are kind, and the food is so delicious. So I went there, visited there, and I found this ramen place, which is very interesting. So I fell in line, you know, in Japan, when a, when a restaurant is good, people fall in line. And people flock there and they try. So I fell in line, I waited for my order, and as I wait, um, a boy and a mother come. Um, in Japan, ramen shops are small. You're, it's cramped. Usually it's uh, expected you share a table or the bar. So I took the bar, and the boy came with his mother. The boy was sniffing, maybe due to colds, because it was winter when we got there. Um, so as we were waiting, uh, he was seated next to me. Uh, we were inches away from each other. I mean, you are like this, cramped. And so the hot bowl of ramen came. And it smells really good. It smells good. Uh, I cannot explain how good it is, but it's really young. So it's there. And as I began to pray, the boy took the... The red powder, it's called togarashi. If you want to add more spice, you put the togarashi. So as I pray, he began pouring his togarashi on his ramen. And as soon as I said amen, he took the first slur and sneezed big time. He was inches away from me, so all the bits and pieces of ramen noodles were on my hands. It's like Jackson Pollock on the canvas. You know, our our understanding of what is clean and what's not unclean, or what's clean and what's unclean, is different from the ancient Near Eastern understanding of what's clean and what is unclean. Some things in our culture in, are different from the culture of the, the ancient Near Eastern people, like people in the Old Testament. So their understanding of what's clean and unclean is different from us. I say that because in Leviticus chapter 12, you will read that if a woman gives birth to a child, she becomes unclean, ritually or ceremonially unclean. What you will also find is that if she bears a male child, she becomes unclean for 40 days before she can offer sacrifices and be declared clean after 40 days. If she, gets, uh, um, if she bears a female child, she 
becomes unclean for 80 days. Now, here's the thing. The Bible does not explain or does not give any explanation as to why she is unclean. There's no explanation. But scholars are in agreement that anything that has to do with blood coming out of her makes her unclean. And so when she is delivering the baby, blood is coming out. Life is coming out. Leviticus says that life is in the blood and therefore when she is delivering the baby, life is coming out and therefore the blood makes her unclean. Now, I, I know that this is kind of different to understand in our culture and in our modern culture. It's, there's no comparison to what the Bible is saying about clean and unclean. And I know this topic is very sensitive, but even so, what this means is that their private lives are governed by laws to keep them holy before God. And the only qualification is that God wants to live among them, dwell in the midst of them, and they have to abide by certain principles of ritual purity or cleanliness. And this is what the Bible says. This is what God requires for the people of Israel based on Leviticus chapter 12. So Leviticus 12 is about childbirth. It's a, a very short chapter. Leviticus 15 is all about bodily discharge. So anything that comes out of your genitalia, whether voluntary or involuntary, whether blood or something else, it makes you unclean. Now again, there's no explanation as to why, but the idea is that anything that is related to your genitalia, anything that, any fluid that comes out of it, makes you unclean, and therefore makes you unacceptable to God, to enter in the presence of God. Let me read to you Leviticus 15 verse 2 to make this clear. It says, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when a man or when any man has a discharge from his body, his discharge is unclean. Now this one is talking about involuntary discharge. This is about sickness. There's a certain, certain kind of infection that makes this discharge come out and makes that man unclean. And the Bible said that he's unclean for seven days, for a week. He's unclean. And the Bible also said that anything he touches become unclean. So that means the bed, the chair, his clothes, anything that he put his hands to become unclean. Even the clay pots must be broken because they become unclean. And the same thing goes for the woman. Verse 19, when a woman has a discharge and the discharge in her body is blood, she shall be in her menstrual impurity for seven days. And whoever touches her shall be unclean until the evening. So if anything comes in contact with her, that means the person becomes unclean. Or anything becomes unclean. That means she has to make sure that she announces to her family that she has appeared and therefore nobody touches her. It goes for the man and the woman. Now, it doesn't make sense if you read the whole chapter, but you go to verse 31. There's a certain rationale behind it. Verse 31 says, Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that's in their midst. So the context means that if a person is unclean, whether man or woman, whether discharge or menstruation, he or she cannot go to the temple, offer sacrifices, and go to the house of God. Because she is unclean. Anything unclean is not acceptable in the house of God. Uh, I'm going to have to clarify again. This is 
a ritual kind of uncleanness, not the moral kind. It has nothing to do with sin. It has nothing to do with your moral status before God. It's something to do with sanitation. Our kind of sanitation is different from God's sanitation. It has something to do with ritual. As if there's a protocol that God is telling the Israelites. As if God is telling them that holiness is not confined to our moral status, but also to whatever God deems unfit, unclean, and unacceptable. This whole idea behind the law that God is holy and dwells in the midst of the people of Israel is based on the idea that his house, his rules. I know this is kind of common for everyone. If it's your house, you have your own protocol in the house, correct? You don't just invite anyone in the house. You invite people you know to become your guests. Not everyone can come into your house. Is that correct? In the same way, in God's house, the temple, not everyone can come to his house. And especially people who are unclean in this category. I'd like you to think with me now. There were three players back in the Garden of Eden. Three characters. The serpent, the woman, and the man. Now, all of them were involved in a conspiracy. They were all kicked out from the Garden of Eden. They were considered unclean. Now, this is related to Leviticus 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15. If you think about it, all of them were unclean. Leviticus 11 talks about what not to eat because they're unclean. And there's a section there that says anything that crawls in the ground is unclean. Do not eat it. The serpent was cursed to crawl on the ground. Leviticus 12 and 15 corresponds to the uncleanness of the woman giving birth and menstruation. Again, when blood comes out of her, she's unclean. But chapter 13 and 14 talks about the man, because it talks about uncleanness in the skin, leprosy. It talks about man going back to the dust because he was from the dust. So all of this is about uncleanness. And uncleanness is a daily reminder that man is mortal and unworthy of the presence of God. If any person is thinking, I'm worthy to come to the temple because I am innocent, I am clean. No one should ever think that way. I mean, this should remind us that every day, involuntarily or voluntarily, we can become unclean before God. No one is worthy before God. It echoes Romans chapter 3, that we are all sinners before God. Nobody is worthy before God. I want to demonstrate to you how, how this makes sense in the New Testament. How this ritual purity moves us away from God, but also gives us a reason how we can become closer to God. Now we turn to a very peculiar story in the book of Mark. It begins when Jesus took a boat ride and in the middle of the sea, he fell asleep and a storm came. Now anyone who has been in a yacht or a boat in the middle of the storm, in the middle of the sea? Anyone? I have been uh, in the Philippines going to Romblon. It was a, a very rocky boat ride. It's like, now you see, now you don't. Now you see, now you don't. It's, it's rocking. So, remember some of the disciples of Jesus were fishermen. They're used to the sea. They're used to the storm in the sea. And yet in the middle of the sea, this big storm was tossing away the boat. And the disciples of Jesus panicked because they were about to die. And so even the 
fishermen, disciples of Jesus, panicked. And so in their panic, they said, Teacher, don't you care that we are perishing? Now, of course, it's a rhetorical question. Of course, Jesus cares. But I think this is a normal protocol for whenever we go through a difficult time. Although we know that God cares, but when we see the storm, when we see the waves, when we see the wind, we focus on it, and we see the overwhelming possibility of drowning. And so we start to doubt God if He cares. And so in your prayer, you say, God, do you really care? If you care, please say something. If you care, please do something. <clears throat> the story said that Jesus woke up, He rebuked the wind and the sea, by saying, peace, be still. Those are just the three words he said. Peace, be still. Now instantly, the Bible said the sea calmed down and the, and the storm went away. And if you are one of the disciples, you would say, wow, oh my goodness, hands down, impressive. But there's something else that happened there. Because of what they saw, his very own disciples said in Mark chapter 4, verse 41, it says they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who is this? I mean, we know Jesus. We heard him speak. We heard him teach the Bible. We saw him cast out demons and heal the sick. But the wind and the sea obey him? Who is this guy? I think it's fair to say that if the disciples were with Jesus, who have witnessed whatever he did and whatever he taught, who lived with him, ate with him, walked with him, I think it's fair to say that if they don't know Jesus, it's likely possible that we also don't know Jesus. In fact, I would say that we have a very faint idea of who Jesus really is. There's a Barna group that made a survey in 2018 about Jesus Christ. Among the baby boomers, if you are in this category, only 58% believe that Jesus is God or divine. Among the Gen Xers, which I belong to, only 48% believe that Jesus is God. And among the millennials, younger than me, 48% believe that Jesus is God. And it goes down. When people say or use the word God, According to the Pew Research Center, one-third of Americans refer to different deities, a different kind of God. So that means when your favorite artist gets up to the stage to receive an award and say, I thank God, whoops, hang on, whose God is he seeing thanking? Because we have different concepts of who God is. In fact, we have a different version of Jesus. We have a different understanding exactly of who Jesus is. That's why it's confusing to a lot of people. They get confused why there's so many different religions that talk about the same guy, Jesus. Maybe the same name, but different version of Jesus. What they don't understand is that different groups have different versions of the real Jesus. Let me give an example. The Jesus of the Mormons is Lucifer's older brother. They say that in their Bible. The Jesus of the Muslims did not really die on the cross, therefore he did not resurrect, but he ascended to heaven. A different kind of Jesus. The Jesus of the Jehovah's Witness is a lesser God, not a member of the Trinity. You see, these are different Jesuses. And when people say, Jesus? Really? Who is he? So the question really is, 
What do we believe about who Jesus is? What do we know about him? And how do we know that what we know about him is the real Jesus? It's fair? Now when Jesus and his disciples reached destination, he, they reached the country of the Gerasenes. The, the Gerasenes is a Gentile territory where you will find the Roman outposts in there. And immediately as they went off the boat, a man who's demon-possessed met with them. Anyone seen a demon-possessed man? Anyone seen the exorcist movie? Yes, you know what I'm talking about. It's scary. So this demon-possessed man came running to Jesus. Mark chapter 5, verse 2. I want you to pay attention to the words. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him, out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit, he lived among the tombs. Now immediately, you notice two things here. Number one, there was tombs. And number two, unclean spirit. Now we're talking about Leviticus chapter 12 and 15. Unclean, unclean. Leviticus chapter 11, unclean food. Leviticus 13 and 14, unclean skin, disease. And what you find here is an unclean spirit. Why not just say demons? Because demons are practically going back, Genesis chapter 3, the serpent who was thrown out of Eden became unclean. It gives you the trace, the connection that this is unclean. And not only that, this man was possessed by the unclean spirit and he was living among the tombs. Now in Numbers chapter 19, it's prohibited for an Israelite to touch a dead man or a corpse because he becomes unclean. So, you know, this guy is not only possessed within, but he also lived in the tombs, which is unclean. Makes him more unclean. And immediately, this man came to Jesus Christ. Now, verse 7 is very interesting. Because it says, And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me? Jesus, the Son of the Most High God, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Now, I know that you have read this, this story countless times, but what's interesting here is that this story is about is, a, is connected to the first story in the storm where the disciples asked, who is this? They don't know Jesus Christ. And yet this guy, possessed by the demon spirit, knew Jesus well. Don't you find it funny? The disciples did not know who Jesus is. They just know that Jesus is a teacher, or a rabbi, or a healer, or a magician of some kind. But they didn't know who Jesus really is. And yet this demon-possessed man has spoken out who Jesus really is. They said, Son of the Most High God. You see, the title Son of the Most High God is a title of divinity. Jesus Christ is the Son of the Most High God, the inheritor of the Most High God. The Most High God is no other than Yahweh. Nobody uses that title in any other religion, the Most High God, only in Israel. And this demon knows who Jesus really is. When I was reading this, I find it funny that the disciples did not know, and yet the demons know. The demon, when Jesus asked him, his name is called Legion. A legion is a, a number of a, uh, an army. It's about 5,400. And so imagine if this legion spirit, they said, my name is legion because we are many. Imagine the demons possessing that 
person. Now, what's interesting here is that during the time that when this guy possessed by the evil spirit, unclean spirit, we're talking to Jesus, there was a herd of pigs nearby. And Jesus was about to cast down, cast out the demons away from this man. Mark chapter 5 verse 13 says, So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. So what we have here is the unclean spirit, is the unclean place, it's called a tomb, and the unclean animals called the pigs. Everything is unclean. And Jesus came to purify. You get the story. He was cleaning up the mess. This lesson is about a lesson of holiness. And the next thing you know, they took a boat ride again and went to the other side of the lake. And as soon as they reached the other side, people were waiting for Jesus Christ. I mean, it's very popular in this place. And a certain man named Jairus came begging to Jesus asking him if he can lay his hands on his dying daughter. Now, according to the Bible, Jairus was a ruler of the synagogue. It means he's a manager of a synagogue, of a congregation. So Jesus obliged. And as soon as they went towards the house of Jairus, there was a woman who had a miscarriage for 12 years. Not a miscarriage, by the way, sorry. Has a discharge of blood for 12 years. Now, we're talking about uh, Leviticus chapter 12 and 15. Blood makes you unclean. So we're not only talking about the unclean spirit. Now this woman is unclean. Discharged for 12 years. Can you imagine having, I cannot imagine, I'm, I'm not a woman. But can you imagine if you're a woman and you have menstruation, unlimited flow of blood for 12 years. Now again, if I go back to Leviticus chapter 15, if you have a menstruation, you cannot touch anyone. You are unclean for seven days. And if this girl is unclean for 12 years, that means he has not been touching anyone or talking to anyone for 12 years. It's most likely that she has been driven away from her home or else she will contaminate her family. That means she cannot get married. She cannot talk to anyone. She don't have friends. She cannot have any job that means touching something, she's alone by herself. She's abandoned and isolated. This woman has a, has a discharge of blood for 12 years. You know, it's not required for this woman to go outside the camp or live outside the camp. But I'm sure that the community knows about her. It's very hard to live in a community. You cannot hide the stench of blood dripping away, dripping on your legs. So this woman must be far from a lot of people and isolated. But she heard about Jesus Christ. And she heard that Jesus is coming her way. And this is what she said. She said, if I can only touch the fringes of Jesus' garment, I will be healed. Luke has a, a more definitive uh, narrative in here. Luke chapter 8 verse 44 said, She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. Now what is a fringe? It's called tzitzit. In Hebrew it's tzitzit. The fringe of his garment is called tzitzit. Those are the tassels in the corner of a Jewish cloth. Tassels. I mean we have some, some of our clothes have tassels. 
Now, back in the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy, the Israelites were commanded to wear tassels because it's meant to remind them to follow the law. It's meant to remind them of their covenant with God. Some of the Jews that you see today, even in, in Miami, they have tassels with the hair hanging at the side of their head. And they have tassels on their clothes, or the clothing, and on their prayer shawls. It, it's like a wedding ring. It should remind you that you're connected to God. You have a covenant with God. And so this woman was thinking, if I can only touch the fringes of Jesus' clothing, I will be healed. Now what makes her think that if touching the, the tassel or the fringes of Jesus' clothing will make her, will heal her? Because there's a passage in the book of Malachi that Jews believe to be incorporated in that idea. Malachi chapter 2, 4, verse 2. It says, But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. It's kind of odd if you read this first. But the Hebrew word for wings is kanaf. It's also the word for fringes. So the, the Jews interpret this and they believe that then when the Messiah comes, his, his clothing with fringes will bring healing. Any Jew in the first century, in the second temple, believed that the Messiah will come wearing fringes that can heal. And so this woman was thinking that. She's got this in mind. If I can only touch the fringes, if this is the Messiah Jesus, and if he has healing in his fringes, and if I can only touch the fringes of his clothing, I will be healed. So she took her chance. She mixed with the crowd and touched the fringes of Jesus. This is what Jesus said in Mark chapter 5, verse 34. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. That's very interesting because during the storm, Jesus said the same thing, peace, be still. Now he's giving peace and healing to this woman. Now let's not get distracted here because the story was really about the guy who was asking for help because his daughter is dying. Remember that. Now this woman just interrupted Jesus on his way to the house. But this tells me is that Jesus stopped. He didn't mind interruption. He stopped to talk to this girl. You see, God is never too busy not to stop if we are so desperate for help. God is always available for someone who is desperate for help. But this woman reached out. We have to reach out. We have to be desperate enough to ask. And while Jesus was speaking, what's very interesting is this. A messenger came and said to Jairus, Your daughter's dead. She's gone. Why bother to teach her any further? I think sometimes we, we go this way and we tell ourselves, Well, God knows my prayer already, so why bother? Or maybe we also say that, You know, God has bigger problems than mine. So why bother? Why would God be interested in my love life or, or my credit card debts or my cholesterol level or my waistline? I mean, God has bigger problems than mine. Maybe I should not bother God. But you see, if we are desperate enough, God is not too busy not to stop for us. 
This is what the runner told Jairus. Your daughter's dead. Do not bother the teacher any longer. But Jesus overheard it and said, Do not fear, just believe. So when Jesus went inside the house to where the corpse was laid, Mark gives us a clue, a sort of marker to tell us that this is something special. What's about to happen is something special. Mark chapter 5, verse 37. It says, And he allowed no one to follow him. It's Jesus. Jesus allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Who are these guys? These guys are not three stooges, okay? So these guys belong to the inner circle of Jesus' disciples. These same three guys were the same guys Jesus brought to the temple in the transfiguration. Luke chapter 19. In Luke chapter 19, in the transfiguration, he revealed this full glory. He revealed this who he really is. Even these guys saw Jesus in full disclosure of glory. He, he transfigured it in their sight. These figures, these guys even heard the voice of God saying, this is my beloved son. Follow him. These guys also saw Moses and Elijah came back to life. So if you're reading this and you see the names of these guys, Peter, James, and John, you know there's something going to happen. You know that God is doing something. And you know that Jesus is about to reveal himself big time. So they came to the house. The professional mourners were already there. You know, in ancient times, when somebody dies, you hire a professional mourner. Somebody who cries for you. Because you cannot do it. You have to entertain your guests. So you have to hire someone to cry. I mean, to, to, to act like she's the one, uh, the relative of, of the departed. And so when Jesus came, there were professional mourners and flute players already there. They were preparing for the burial. But Jesus said, she's just sleeping. She's not dead. She's just sleeping. A very odd for Jesus to say that. So the people said, that's funny. So Jesus took the three disciples and the, the parents to the room where the corpse was laid. And the Bible said that Jesus touched the corpse. Whoops, hang on. Numbers chapter 19 says that if you touch a corpse, you become unclean. Does that mean Jesus became unclean? This is what exactly Mark said, chapter 5, verse 42. 41 and 42. He said, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, it's, it's Aramaic, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately, the girl got up and began walking. See, the two words, got up, is a compound word, which is actually a cognate of Anastasia. The word got up is one word in Greek, is anastemi. The, the cognate word is Anastasia or Anastasis. Some, some people have their names, Anastasio. What does it mean? It means arise, to arise. See, the English equivalent of Anastasis is resurrection. But this means that the girl got up, the girl resurrected and began walking. It tells you who Jesus really is. This tells you the answer to the question, who is Jesus really? It gives us a clue as to who Jesus really is. Jesus did not just tell who he is. He gave a demonstration of who he really is. Jesus is the resurrection. You see, the resurrection is the reversal of the curse in Eden. Now listen carefully. When Jesus calmed the storm, he said, peace be still. 
So peace in Hebrew is shalom. Shalom is more than just, you know, calm down. Shalom in Hebrew means putting things back in order, bringing harmony. It means wholeness, like you know, cleaning your house when it's a mess or uh, tidying up your kitchen after it's used or maybe taking a shower afterward. To declare shalom is to declare a person clean. To declare something clean and pure is shalom. So when Jesus rose up, he said to the wind of the sea, Peace be still, shalom, calm down. This was to open the eyes of the disciples for them to ask the question, Who is really this guy who can command the wind and the sea to shalom? You got to read this story as a continuation of the story where the disciples asked, Who is Jesus? So when you are in this room with Jesus, Peter, James, and John, and Talud, Tanita Kumi, rose up from, the, from being dead. You've got to ask the same question. Who is this Jesus who can raise the dead? Not just who is Jesus who can stop the wind and the sea and the storm. Who is this Jesus who can raise the dead? You see, our bigger problem is not getting healed from sickness. We will still get sick. We will get healed. We will get sick, and then we will die. That's not a real problem. The bigger problem we have is that because we are sinners, we are facing judgment. Because we are sinners, we are unclean before God. That's our real problem. You gotta read the story of the dead girl raised to life as the final answer to the question who Jesus really is. Jesus is the resurrection. Jesus came to bring shalom, to establish the Garden of Eden back, to give us access back to the Garden of Eden. When you read the story, you're reading the rehearsal of God's plan. And the plan is to bring Eden by commanding one storm at a time, cleaning one life at a time, resurrecting one life at a time. The plan to remove, sorry, the plan is to remove the cherubim that guards the Garden of Eden. So that Adam and Eve can return to the Garden of Eden, eat from the tree of life, that is Jesus Christ. So when you read Revelation 22, you find out that there's the tree of life again. In heaven, in the place of God, in the throne of God. That's Eden for us. You see, the plan is not just to solve our credit card debts or to, to lower our cholesterol. It's not just to help us break our bad habits. Those things are important. The bigger plan is to eliminate anything that makes us sick, unclean, and unholy. And the plan is to bring us back to the very presence of God. The greatest problem you see is not sickness, it's sin. The love of the world is in such a mess. Because the people are themselves a mess. The world is full of malice and hatred and greed and violence. It is for this reason that God commanded the Israelites in chapter 15, verse 31 of Leviticus. He said, Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. Now, ritual defilement is a real thing. And the Bible said that those who have put their faith in Jesus, the real followers of Jesus, people who have relationship with Jesus, the Bible said, we are the new temple of God. If that is so, if we are the temple of God, and you are not able to separate from uncleanness, that means you and me, 
defiled the temple of God. Listen to Apostle Paul with sparking words. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 14. He said, Do not be equally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord does Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said, I will make my dwelling among them, and I will walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. But this is encompassing. It's not just moral purity, but also ritual purity in mind. We have everything, every reason to stay clean because we carry the temple of God. The Holy Spirit is with us. The presence of God is with us. We don't have to go to Jerusalem, to the Holy Land, to meet God. God is here in this place. This is how the Bible tells us. And this is revolutionary to say the least. Because people have been looking for God all their lives. People, people go to the farthest area in the Southeast Asia and find a, a small Buddhist monastery and try to find and meditate and try to find God. But see, what the Bible is saying is that we... Those who have real relationship with Jesus, those who know Jesus, those who are followers of Jesus, those who have been made new creations, have been made temple of the living God. Our challenge is to stay clean, to stay away from evil, to stay away from the filth of this world. Be different from the world. See, the Israelites of this, they're asked to be different. They're asked to, clean, to eat certain food. They're asked to dress certain kind of lifestyle. They're asked to live a certain kind of lifestyle because they're a separate people. The challenge for us as a church is the same thing. We have to be different from the world. We have, the world will know when we, they look at us that we're different, not because of what we wear, not because of our hairstyle, not because of our ripped jeans, but because they can see our lives. There's something in our lives that attract people. There's something that we say that attract people. There's something about our lifestyle that attract people. The Bible said, God has made a dwelling among us. Let's take clean. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, for the reminder that, that we are your temple now that you would dwell in the midst of your people. And that we are your temple if we have this relationship with you, that if we follow with Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, that we have committed our lives to be disciples of Jesus Christ, not just every Sunday, but every day of the week, 24-7. It has become our new identity to be identified with you. Father, allow us that even in 
these passages of Leviticus chapter 12 and Leviticus 15, and the story about Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you will reveal yourself to us. Reveal who Jesus Christ is. Help us understand who Jesus Christ is, so that we can commit our lives to the Son of the Most High God. So we do not shortchange our commitment to Jesus. We do not just give Him scraps of our tithes and offerings, of our some of our time and some of our talents. Father, we pray that you will allow us to fully grasp the intensity of who we are now because of Jesus Christ. I pray that you will bless everyone today. I pray even, Father, that you will extend your blessings. Those people are not yet are not here. I pray for healing for those who are sick. I pray comfort to those who are suffering. I pray immediate solutions to their problems. But I pray, Father, that your the comfort of the Holy Spirit will be with them, to comfort them. In Jesus' name we pray.